sharing your heart with us, for your faithful uh, ministry, your Belinda Flock. Uh, it's been such an encouragement to see you uh, grow and thrive there and to exercise your ministry and prayer groups. Um, we want to welcome you all back, uh, especially welcome back the sisters of our church, and we just praise God for great things we heard of uh, last week's retreat, Christ our all, and seeing Christ exalted among the women of our church and seeing them come back so refreshed and encouraged. And um, last week was, uh, it was great, the men, you know, getting together to worship, but it was, uh, I guess, a little lonely, and um, it's not, we love being around each other, the men, but I guess it's a little less fun when we don't get the paintball afterwards, and uh, we have, uh, take the kids out to, to food, so we're just so thankful that uh, the sisters of our church are back with us this morning. I think it would be appropriate just this morning to... I thank Pastor James for um, his faithful ministry here in the pulpit these last number of weeks. Uh, I don't know about you, I've been, I'm sure I speak for all of you, that uh, we've just been so blessed, so encouraged. Um, every Saturday night I have this uh, excitement in my heart and in my stomach of uh, what's God going to do tomorrow and how's he going to bless us and what's he going to teach us through the pulpit. And um, I think very few people will know that how difficult it is to sustain the pulpit ministry with excellence week after week, year after year, and um, our Pastor James has done so, and uh, by God's grace, and so we just appreciate you and thank you for your ministry. Well, um, this morning, I um, well, I did have a message all ready to go, and uh, we even had a special music that was going to go along with the message and everything, And um, but yesterday morning in CBI, we spent the last hour uh, discussing Romans 9 together. And if you've ever studied Romans 9, once you're in Romans 9, it's really difficult to come out of Romans 9. It's like a vast swimming pool. You kind of dive in and you get lost and you don't know which end is up. And I found myself last night still just swimming in Romans 9 and just couldn't get away from Romans 9. And um, I just couldn't detach myself from this passage. And so... I thought it would best serve our church if we went with the passage that is fresh on my heart, and that is Romans chapter 9. If you were in CBI yesterday, your thoughts and discussions and comments have helped me so much in just clarifying my own understanding of this chapter, and I've contributed to this message this morning. But I want to talk about Romans 9, and I want to talk about the doctrine of God's sovereign freedom. The doctrine of God's sovereign freedom. And I want to take you to Romans 9, but I want to take you to Romans 9 through Exodus chapter 33. So if you, have, if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Exodus chapter 33. We're going to use this passage as a foundation for our understanding of Romans 9. Exodus chapter 33. And if you want to put your finger in Romans 9, you can go ahead and do so. We'll be going right over there. Exodus chapter 33, we'll dive right into our study this morning in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you, you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious 
and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. We'll stop right there. If we were to sum up our entire message this morning, it would be in the one statement that God says to Moses in Exodus 33. And that is this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Moses in this chapter prays a very simple prayer to God. He says, God, show me thy glory. Show me something of your essential being. Show me something of the beauty of who you are. Show me something of your greatness, of your supremacy. Show me something of who you are that I may stand amazed at the greatness of your person. And God answers in a very interesting and specific way. Instead of showing Moses a a blazing vision of light immediately, instead of showing Moses something visually that will rock his world, he answers by saying, if you want to see my glory, Moses, you need to understand one thing about me, and that is this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In other words, God says to Moses, it is the glory of who I am to be gracious to whom I will be gracious. It is the glory of who I am to show compassion on whom I shall show compassion. In other words, Moses, it is my glory and you will experience something of my glory when you understand and when you take to heart my sovereign freedom to do as I please, to whom I shall please, whenever I shall please. If you understand this statement and this self-identification of God, what God says to Moses is, you will experience my glory. Because this is the glory of who I am. It is my Sovereign freedom. I am gracious to whoever I choose to be gracious to. I show compassion upon whom I will show compassion. In other words, God says, I do what I want. I am answerable to no one. I am counseled by no one. I am influenced by nothing and no one outside myself. I am sovereign, which means that I am infinite in my power and can do as I please. And I am free, which means I do do as I please because I am able. And God says to Moses, if you understand this, this is my glory. This is the essential nature of who I am. What God teaches Moses in this passage could be summarized in this doctrine. The doctrine of sovereign freedom. The sovereign freedom of God. And this doctrine is spoken of in such passages such as Psalm 115 verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. 
Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Scriptures repeatedly testify to us that God does as he pleases, when he pleases, to whom he pleases, he is answerable to no one, he is accountable to no one, he does all things for his own sovereign good pleasure. God is both sovereign, unlimited in power, and he is free, free to do as he sees fits. This doctrine teaches that God, not man, is the center of the universe. God, not man, is the center of history. God is infinite in power, infinite in strength, infinite in sovereignty, infinite in supremacy. In the words of Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And God said to Moses that day, if you want to see my glory, if you want to experience the greatness of who I am, understand this one thing about me. I am a God of sovereign freedom. I am a God of sovereign freedom. And you will experience my glory. Back in Exodus chapter 3, God revealed Himself to Moses in the great statement, I am who I am. He said to Moses, here's what you need to understand about me. I am the self-existent one. I am the self-sufficient one. I am the independent one. I exist apart from any contingency outside myself. I am the uncaused. I am the uncreated. I am the God who was and is and who is to come. I do not change. I do not develop. I do not become. I do not improve. I am who I am. And in this passage, Exodus 33, God says, Moses, not only do you need to know that I am who I am, you need to understand I do what I do. And I don't need to answer to any part of my creation as to why I do it or what have I done. Scripture testifies that God does all things for His good pleasure. He does all things for His own fame. He does all things for His own glory. He does all things for His own happiness. He does all things for His good pleasure, which means He does it because He wants to do it. He does it because it makes Him happy to do it. Why did God create the world and the universe and the stars and all that there is? It is simply because He wanted to. This is the doctrine of God's sovereign freedom. 
So I'm going to pause at this point and I want to bring this truth down to earth and I want to talk to you as a shepherd, as a pastor. Because this isn't just a truth that is out there. This is a truth that I believe that God wants us as Cornerstone Bible Church to know and to experience and to see the glory of. To many of us, myself included, the doctrine of God's sovereign freedom is a lot like hearing a foreign language. We hear the words, we understand the general concepts, but it seems like it's just this foreign culture, this foreign land. God does what He does when He wants to do it, and the whole universe centers around Him, and we live in a man-centered society, a man-centered world where our air that we breathe says to us that we are sovereign and that we determine things, and we call the shots, and we're in control, and the world revolves around us, and for us to hear of this other world, it seems like, where God is the center of the universe, that God does all things for His own fame and His own glory, it's almost like a whole parallel universe, and we feel like we hear this language, and we understand the words and the concepts, but it seems like a, a foreign land. And what I just want to encourage you as a shepherd is, dear brothers and sisters, the world we live in, the reality that we feel we experience where we're the big shots and we're in control and we're calling the shots and we're determining our own destinies, that, that world is not reality. Um, God's world is the real reality where He's in control, and He's on the throne, and He's doing all things for Himself. And what I just want to encourage you with is that although this seems like a foreign language at first, to remove the blinders from our eyes and to realize that this world in which we feel that we are self-determining and we are the ones who manage our own destiny to see the facade of that and to live in reality of the God-centered nature of the universe, that's a blessed place to go. And God wants us to go there not because He wants to beat us over the head with intense theology that burdens our lives. He doesn't want to shame us. He wants us to go there because He knows that as, our, as His children, to go into that reality is to experience the greatest blessedness and the greatest peace. Just give you one example of this. Romans 8.28, when you live in the world where God is on the throne and He does all things for the sake of His own name, you also realize that He does all things for the sake of His, the good of His children, ultimately to the glory of His name. And so you know that God works all things according to what is good for His children and ultimately glorifying to Himself. So to exit this world where Man is determinative, and to enter this world where God is sovereign is to experience the greatest blessing and the greatest peace, and that is why God wants us to go there. All that to say this. If you do go into this world, if you do go into this world where God is determinative, and God is free, and He has mercy on whom He has mercy, and He's gracious to whom He has, He's gracious to. For most 
believers, it is a painful process. We'll just be upfront about that. I know for me, when I first came to terms with the doctrine of God's sovereign freedom, I was first year in, as being a Christian. And I have to tell you that I, I hated this doctrine. I, it was horrible to me. I, I raged against it. I, I broke down and wept when I understood this truth. And it wasn't tears of joy, it was tears of rage. It was tears of bewilderment, tears of confusion. You mean to say that God sovereignly chooses those who will come to Christ apart from any influence except for Himself, and that those that He passes over are condemned? How is that fair? And I raged against this doctrine, and I hated this doctrine, and I wish that it wasn't in my Bible, but the more I grew and the more I studied, you can't read the Bible without recognizing that this doctrine is taught in the Bible because it's taught over and over and over again. It's not a minor issue. It's not a side issue. It is central to both Old Testament and New Testament teaching, the sovereign freedom of God to do as He pleases. And so, through time, through years, I have come to the place where this doctrine is sweet to me and that it comforts me, but it did not come without pain. Because the end result of all this is that if you believe in the doctrine of God's sovereign freedom, it will crush your pride. And I lived in a world where my heart said, Dan, you call the shots, and you came to Christ because you were smart enough and brave enough and willing enough, and this doctrine came to me and said, no, God sovereignly saved you and therefore you can take no credit and you can boast in nothing except in what God has done in His sovereign grace. It was a painful process to me, but what was comforting to me is to know that it was a painful process to many great men of God, even many men who are the defenders of this doctrine in contemporary times. Jonathan Edwards, who, if anyone believed in the sovereignty of God, said this, From childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and full satisfied as to the sovereignty of God and His justice and thus eternally dealing with men according to His sovereign pleasure. There has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense in God's showing mercy to whom He will show mercy. This doctrine has very often appeared exceeding bright and pleasant. And he concluded by saying, Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Our prayer is that every member of Cornerstone Bible Church would come to that place where absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But did you notice that for Edwards to get there, it wasn't without a lot of struggle and pain. He said, when I first heard this doctrine, it was a horrible doctrine. 
God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. He's influenced by no one. That's horrible to me. It crushes my pride. But he came to the place where he loved it and he savored it. In contemporary time, one of the greatest defenders of God's sovereignty is Pastor John Piper. He writes this about his struggle with this doctrine. He said, I believed in the self-determination of man. I had not learned this from the Bible. I absorbed it from the independent, self-sufficient, self-esteeming, self-exalting air that you and I breathe every day of our lives in America. The sovereignty of God meant that God can do anything with me that I give Him permission to do. Emotions run high when you feel your man-centered world crumbling around you. But thanks be to God's mercy and patience, at the end of the semester of seminary, I wrote in my blue book for the final exam, Romans 9 is like a tiger going about devouring free willers like me, and that was my end of my love affair with human autonomy and the ultimate self-determination of my will. My worldview simply could not stand against the scriptures, especially Romans 9. So I said to the students at CBI yesterday, if you struggle with this doctrine, all that means is that maybe you're the next John Piper. <laughs> Don't be afraid of struggling with this doctrine. R.C. Sproul, who is the foremost defender of God's sovereignty in our day and time, said he came to the place where he was intellectually convinced that the Bible taught this. He couldn't get around it. And so he said, well, I believe that the Bible teaches this, but I don't have to like it. And so many Christians are in this process of coming to terms with the God-centeredness of God. It begins with passionate objection. That can't be true. It moves to intellectual persuasion. The Bible teaches that I can't get around it, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. And then the heart begins to see the beauty of this truth. And finally, it ends in passionate exaltation. Divine sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. And if you're in somewhere in that process, I would encourage you that that process as a pastor, I would encourage you, that process is normal. Great men of God have gone through it. Keep learning, keep striving, keep chewing on the Scriptures. But that's our heart, is that you come to this place where you say, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. And let me also say that if you just learn this thing, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and you walk away and say, hey, cool, God's sovereign, awesome and go on with your life, and it doesn't rock your world, or it doesn't smash your pride, or it doesn't humble you to the dust, you probably haven't even heard it or understood it yet. Because this doctrine smashes man's autonomy to the dust. Believers, that place is the place of the highest joy and the highest blessing. God rules over all. He does as He pleases. He is unlimited in power. He is answerable to no one. He is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. This is the doctrine of God's sovereign freedom. Now, with this in mind, let's go to Romans chapter 9. And we're, what I want to do is just preach the basic message of Romans chapter 9. Obviously, we're not going to have time this morning to go into in-depth to every single verse. We're not going to have... Uh, time this morning to get into every phrase or every word study. But it was just 
the compulsion of my heart that the basic message of Romans chapter 9 needs to be proclaimed because God wants us to know how awesome He is that we may be drawn into His presence and that we may better understand His grace in our lives. Romans chapter 9, and what I want just to prep you for this is that this is going to be Paul as a lawyer. This is going to be Paul reasoning with us raising up hypothetical questions that he anticipates our hearts having, answering those questions, moving us along a logical f- flow of thought. And so you're going to have to follow the flow of thought with me. I want to try to break it down so you can see Paul's train of thought and the objections that he raises and how he answers them. But this is going to be more of a logical argument of Paul that you'll need to follow if you under- understand what he's saying in Romans chapter 9. This passage is going to highlight divine sovereignty. We're going to end up right where we started in Exodus chapter 33. But the primary purpose of Romans chapter 9 is not to answer the question of divine sovereignty. It's actually to answer another question, which is the problem of Israel's unbelief. The problem of Israel's unbelief. The book of Romans is a book about salvation. Chapters 1 to 8 talk about the doctrine of justification by faith, the blessings to those who believe in Jesus Christ. But after discussing salvation, and after ending on this high note in chapter 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In chapter 9, Paul answers what appears to be a theological problem that would threaten believers' trust in the faithfulness of God. And the problem he addresses is the problem of Israel's unbelief. Now let me just state what the issue is very clearly so you understand it. The issue that is on Paul's heart and mind is that if Israel is God's people, if to Israel was given the Old Testament covenants, if to Israel was given the Old Testament scriptures, if to Israel was given the law, to the nation of Israel was given the prophecies and the prophets and all the things that spoke of Messiah, if Jesus was a Jewish Messiah who came to the nation of Israel, who was presented to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, then the question is this, why do we look around at the world today And the nation of Israel is unbelief. They don't believe in their Messiah. They haven't received the blessings promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. They haven't received the the blessings that come from believing in the Messiah of the Old Testament. If this is a Jewish Messiah given to a Jewish people according to Jewish prophecies from a Jewish Old Testament Scripture then why is it that this Jewish Messiah is being proclaimed and presented in the world today and what we see is that the church is filled with Gentiles? What's going on? That's the issue that he's trying to address. Paul will look at our church and say, I don't see a whole lot of Jews here. He will look at me. Not a single drop of Jewish blood. He would say, This is the issue. If Jesus 
came in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Old Testament Scriptures said that when Messiah came, that Israel would be blessed. Then why is it that Messiah has come and Israel is not blessed? That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 9. Now the issue he's really getting to here is if God made promises to Israel in the Old Testament, He promised them blessings when Messiah came, and Messiah has come and the blessings aren't here. Is it that he failed to keep his word? That's the lawyerly argument that he's kind of getting at. Is it that God has failed to be faithful to his promises if he promised blessings and blessings are not here? So he addresses this in Romans chapter 9, and he first of all just starts talking about how sad he is about this whole thing. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren and my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Paul just begins by saying, look, this isn't just a theological issue. This isn't something you just write in an essay. This is something I'm just, this is sad. This is so sad. It is so sad that the nation of Israel, to whom belongs the promises and the covenants and the law and the scriptures and all the prophets who spoke of Jesus were Jewish. And Jesus came to them. He said, I was sent to the lost house of Israel. He came to the Jews. And it is so sad that now that he's come and he's died and he's risen again, they don't believe in him. How sad. I I have unceasing grief and sorrow in my heart. That is just so sad that they would be so hard-hearted that they would reject their Messiah. It's sad. The first thing we look at as we look at the world and we see why isn't Israel receiving their Messiah? Isn't, well, this isn't something we should write an essay about. It's something that it should be sad to our hearts. Jesus was a Jew and he came to the Jews and the Jews received him. And now the gospel is going to the Gentiles. And it's just a reminder to us as as a Gentile church that we really have nothing to boast about. Mina and I were talking about this uh, yesterday. We, as a Gentile believer, we have double reason to be humble. We should be humble because we were sinners and God saved us, and we should be doubly humble because we're Gentiles believing in a Jewish Messiah. And this table was a table set for Jews. And the Jews rejected it. So God took the gospel to the Gentile world. I always remember the story in Matthew 15 of the Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile and she came to Jesus and asked for healing and Jesus said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she compared herself to a dog at a table that was set for Jews and she said, I understand that you were sent to Israel but even the dogs are allowed to lick up the crumbs that fall from the table. Can I just lick up the crumbs? And Jesus said, "Your woman, your faith is great. 
I mean, that's a Gentile believer. We're not just humble because we're sinners and God saved us. We're humble because we're Gentiles. And God crossed, crossed racial boundaries in order to save us. It's not just adoption. It's, it's cross-racial adoption. You understand? But this is what Paul's talking about. He's just saying it's so sad that they've, they've rejected their Messiah. And I just have unceasing sorrow in my heart. But then he raises the potential accusation in verse 6. Someone's going to come along and say, well, if God promised to Israel the promises of blessing and they're not blessed today, then that means that God has failed to keep his word. And if God fails to keep his word to Israel, then he's going to fail to keep his word to us. And all the stuff he said in Romans chapter 8 about God's going to work out everything for our good and his glory and that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Well, that's great, but God's not going to keep that word because he didn't keep his word to Israel. So in order to affirm the faithfulness of God and the veracity of God and the truthfulness of God, Paul says in verse 6, it is not though the word of God has failed. This situation that you see today of Israel and unbelief, it has nothing to do with God not keeping his promises. It is not that the word of God has failed. And then Paul gives this explanation in verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That's the key phrase here. I'll just boil this point down in a summary fashion. What Paul is saying here, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What he's saying here is simply this. Not everyone who descends physically from Abraham receives the blessings of promise just because they are a physical descendant of Abraham. Just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you automatically receive the blessing of promise apart from true faith in the living God. They are not all Israel who descended from Israel within the ethnic Israel. There is a true spiritual Israel who has faith in the true and the living God. And therefore God has not canceled out his promises. And then, I'm summarizing here, but I want to get to the, the heart of what I want to say to you this morning. What Paul does here is he gives an illustration of how you can be a physical descendant of Abraham and not be a child of the promise. And the illustration is a very simple one. It is the illustration of Jacob and Esau. Skipping down to verse 10. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul is establishing the fact that just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're a child of the promise, apart from faith. Just because you are a physical child of Abraham doesn't mean automatically you receive the blessings of the covenant. And a very simple and graphic illustration he gives of this truth is look at Jacob and Esau. Both Jacob and Esau were 
physical children of Abraham. And yet, the blessing of the promise went through Jacob and not through Esau. The blessing of the promise went through the younger, not the older. Two physical children of Abraham, and yet one received the blessing, and one did not. And from Jacob came the nation of Israel, which was God's people. And from Esau came the Edomites, which was a cursed nation. They were both physical descendants of the patriarch Abraham. Yet one was blessed and the other was not. Now here's what is the crux of what I want to say to you this morning. Look at verse 10. The question is, why, if you had a choice between Jacob and Esau, the question is, why does the blessing go through Jacob and not Esau? When Esau was the older brother. Logic and culture and society and everything would say that if you were to choose one of the twins to be the child of promise, the blessing should flow through the older and not the younger because the older would have the rights of the firstborn. Why does the blessing go through Jacob and not through Esau? And Paul answers this question by saying this, verse 11. Now mark this down very carefully. Though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to His choice might stand not because of works, But because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Someone's going to say it. I get it. The blessing went through Jacob because Jacob must have done something good for God. And God saw that and his heart was moved and he decided to put the blessing through Jacob. Or flip side, Esau must have blown it. Esau must have done something horrible and and got out of God's favor and the blessing was supposed to go through him, but he blew it. And therefore, the blessing went to Jacob. Or someone's going to just say, you know, God liked Jacob's personality. You know, God liked Jacob. You know, he was kind of like he liked to be at home and he liked his mom and God kind of liked that. And God doesn't like, you know, hairy guys like Esau. and, And that's why. It was something in them. Something in them must have moved the heart of God. Jacob must have moved his heart towards Jacob. Esau must have moved his heart away from from Esau. And that's why God decided that the blessing is going to go through Jacob and not through Esau. It had to be something that they did, right? Or it had to be something in their personality. It had to be something about them or their lives or their character or their heart. It had to be something, right? And Paul says, though the twins were not yet born, before they could even do anything good or do anything bad, 
before they even came out of their mother's womb and cried their first breath. Before even their personality could be shown, God had already determined that the blessing would flow through Jacob and not through Esau. Before the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to His choice, might stand. That's why the blessing went through Jacob. It's because God is sovereign and He is free to choose as He wills. He's not dependent upon man's counsel. And He chooses whom He shall choose according to His good pleasure. And Paul blows away any idea that it was something in Jacob or something in Esau. And he says it was according to God's choice. And then in verse 13, he makes this very shocking statement. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Did you know that God hates sinners it gives me no pleasure to teach that or to stand behind that but that is just a biblical truth God hates sinners someone's going to say no God God loves sinners but hates the sin right but I ask you is it possible to separate the sin from the sinner we sin because we're sinners, and sin is inside of us. God hates sin, and therefore He hates sinners. We often hear that God hates sin, but not the sinners, but that distinction actually came from a man you may have heard of. His name was Gandhi, who was not a Christian. And it was Gandhi who said, love the sinner, hate the sin. It's not a distinction made in the Bible. Psalm 5.5 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his swords. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Why did God hate Esau? It was because of divine justice. Because it is right for a holy and an awesome and a supreme God to hate iniquity and all those who do iniquity. Why did God love Jacob? It was because of divine grace. It was because He gave to Jacob what Jacob didn't deserve. You read the Old Testament, Jacob wasn't a righteous man. Jacob was a liar. But He loved Jacob simply because he chose to pour sovereign grace upon Jacob and not show sovereign grace to Esau. And so to Esau received divine justice, what is right, what is righteous, what is coming to him. But to Jacob received divine grace that he didn't deserve. Now, this is where I really struggle with this teaching. 
And maybe this morning you're struggling with this teaching. Uh, maybe in your heart you're, you're struggling with it. It's, it's hard teaching. It's, it's difficult to accept that idea that before I was even born, I was either chosen or not chosen. It's, our hearts just don't accept that easily. It's hard for us to hear that it is not up to man who wills or man who works, but it is all according to God's sovereign freedom. It's difficult to hear that. And where I stood when I heard this was to simply say, well, then God's not fair. You know, and that's why I, I broke down and wept, and that's why my heart raged against God, and that's why my heart raged against this doctrine, because in my heart there was this human autonomy that was being assaulted, and it screamed out to God, that's not fair. That's not fair that you choose who you want to choose before they're even born or do anything good or bad, you choose some unto salvation. You pass over others unto damnation. You make the sovereign choice. How is that fair, God? How is it fair that you would choose some unto salvation and they go to heaven? You pass over others and allow them to go to hell. And you condemn those people eternally when the only reason they didn't believe in you is because you didn't choose them. How is that fair? And it wasn't some theological thing for me. It was my buddies. It was my friends. It was my unbelieving people in my family. It's, it's the same with you. This isn't some theological issue. This is our, our lives, our relationships, the people we work with. How, and we, we say, how is this fair? If you believe, it's because God chose you. If you don't believe, it's because God didn't choose you. How is it fair to condemn the person who doesn't believe? The only reason they don't believe is God didn't choose them. Verse 14. Paul anticipates that question. Paul's like reading our mind. It's like, just reads my mind, reads my heart, knows exactly where my thoughts are going to go. That's not fair. Well, what, here's what Paul says, verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. You think that this is not fair? May it never be that we would call God unfair. And then verse 15, he goes right back to Exodus 33 and declares the doctrine of God's sovereign freedom. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Paul goes right back and says, Remember what God said to Moses? I am God, and you are not God. I am sovereign, and you are not sovereign. I am wise, and you are not wise. 
I am in control and you are not in control. Moses, I am who I am. And Moses, I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Whatever I determine is my God's, my sovereign pleasure, this I will do. And Paul brings it all back to that doctrine. Ultimately, if we're struggling with the issue of fairness, it has to do with our view of God. Do we really believe that we're in a position to counsel God? Do we really believe that we're in a position to tell Him that what He does is not right? Do we really believe that we're in a position to say, God, you have this plan, but I don't know. Maybe it's not that good. Paul puts us in our place and says, do you know who God is? He is a God who is both sovereign and free. And therefore, He does as He pleases. And if He wants to love Jacob and hate Esau, if He wants the blessing to go through Jacob and not Esau, if He wants to choose that before either Jacob and Esau were even born, then that is His sovereign right to do so. Verse 19. My question again. God, how can you... You know, my friends, they're all unbelievers, and I love them. And they don't believe in you. And you're teaching me here that they don't believe in you because maybe you haven't chosen them. I don't know, maybe they'll believe later, but as far as I know... People don't believe because you haven't chosen them. So how is it fair that you condemn them? Again, Paul reads my mind and your minds. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault or who resists his will? You will say to me, if God has mercy on whom he has mercy then why does he find fault with those he doesn't have mercy on? And at this point, I would expect Paul to give a perfectly reasonable theological explanation as to why he still, God still condemns sinners even though he has mercy upon whom he has mercy. But here's what Paul says to me and to you and to anyone who would call God into account. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who are you? Who do you think you are? 
you really think that you, a tiny, finite man, who lives on this earth a max 80, 90 years, you really think that you, on this tiny planet called earth, have the right to call into question the sovereign God of the universe? You really think that you are in a position to question God? You really think that you, you're in your own little world, can look up to the Holy One and to say, your ways are not right, and your plan is not right, and your ways are not just. Who are you? Instead of giving us a perfectly reasoned theological explanation, Paul just puts us in our place. He says, let's just get this straight. God is God and you are not. God is the creator and you are the creation. God is sovereign and you are very small. Who are you? Verse 20, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and other for common use? Basic point is, if God makes the pot, doesn't he have the right to do with the pot as he pleases? Doesn't he have the right to destroy one pot and to honor one pot? If he made it, doesn't he own it? And if he owns it, doesn't he do with it as he pleases? And Paul takes the doctrine of God's sovereignty and his sovereign freedom in salvation and he humbles us to the place where we see that God is God and I am not. And so for me, like Job, I clapped my hands over my mouth and I repented. And I said, God, I'm in no position to question you. If you have mercy on whom you have mercy, then that is who you are. And I will not only accept that intellectually, but I'll wrap my heart around it and humble myself before who you are. Now again, this is difficult teaching. And those of us this morning who are hearing Romans 9, possibly some for the first time, I would say that you fall into one of three camps. And I just want to shepherd your hearts a little bit as we respond to this teaching. For some of you hearing this for the first time, like Jonathan Edwards, this seems like a horrible doctrine. And for me, it seemed like a horrible doctrine. And for many Christians, when they first hear this teaching, this seems like a horrible doctrine. 
And even the great Bible teachers of our day who exalt God's sovereignty, for many of them it took years for them to wrestle through this doctrine and to come to terms with it. So if you're struggling with this doctrine, can I just talk to you as a pastor that that's okay. You don't need to toe some line and just mouth some words and just fake a smile and say, you know, praise the Lord and everything's fine and dandy and heard a fine message today and just go on with life. It's okay to struggle with this. At the same time, we would say, we would encourage you that the more you can embrace the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty, the stronger you will be as a believer and the more blessed you will be because this is reality. The world where we determine our own lives is not reality. And so the more we can get beyond the facade that we are the center of the universe and embrace the truth that God is on His throne, this is for our good and for our blessing. So I would just encourage you, keep learning, keep chewing, keep digesting. This doctrine is the meat of God's Word. And it's okay to chew it and to wrestle with it and to talk to others and to keep moving through it. But our heart for you is that you would get to the place where Edwards got absolute sovereignty is what I love to describe to God. A second group of you, you may have come to the place where you understand this doctrine intellectually, but it hasn't become sweet to you. You can rattle off the verses. You can defend it. If we were to ask you a theological, to write a theological essay about it, you could probably write one. But you haven't gotten to the place where maybe like R.C. Sproul, you're saying, I believe it because the Bible teaches it, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. And so your affections are not in tune with the truth that you believe in your head. Or maybe it's just something that You've learned because it's something that the church teaches, but it just hasn't gotten to your heart. It hasn't rocked your world. It hasn't humbled your heart to the dust. And what we would shepherd you and encourage you with is the truth that this doctrine is not a doctrine to debate. It is not a doctrine to just intellectually analyze. It is not a doctrine to puzzle over. This doctrine was given to us because this is who our God is and ultimately it is a doctrine to be rejoiced over and it is a doctrine that comes into our hearts and strengthens our lives through the trials and challenges which are to come and it sustains us. And so we would encourage you that if this is something that has gotten to your head but hasn't broken through to your heart to, to come seek the Lord and to ask Him to show, like Moses, show me your glory and show me this truth in my heart. I will have mercy upon I have mercy, whom I have mercy. And there's a third group this morning that I really have a heart for, and I want to speak to you directly. 
For you this morning, this doctrine is very troubling. Because you're wondering, am I chosen? You're struggling with, am I predestined? If God is sovereign, He has mercy on whom He has mercy. Did, did He choose me? If He already makes the choice before I'm even born, then did He choose me? And maybe you're wrestling with this because you're just not sure if you're a Christian. I mean, maybe you've been part of the Christian deal and you've come to church and maybe you've heard the truth of Jesus Christ and you've even come along, but you haven't had your life changed to the point where you see the fruit of true salvation, where you would be genuinely assured that my faith is genuine in Jesus Christ and God has saved me. And you're wrestling with this because you're saying, if I can be saved only if God has chosen me, then has God chosen me? What I want to say to you very directly this morning is the Scripture nowhere says that if you want to be saved, first check if God chose you before coming to Jesus Christ. Scripture nowhere says that if you want to come to Christ, first you have to check if He predestined you before He'll accept you. So go back and figure out if you're predestined and then come to Christ if the answer is yes. No. Scripture repeatedly describes the invitation to come to Jesus Christ as an open invitation. Jesus said, Come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever shall believeth in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Scripture just says, come. Come to Jesus. Come, receive forgiveness for your sins. Come and believe in His work on the cross. Come, believe in His, the satisfying work, the atonement that He made on your behalf. But once you come, and you're saved, and you're forgiven, and you're redeemed, and you're regenerate, and fruit's starting to grow, and dear child of God, look back and see that the only reason you came is because you were first chosen. And because of that, you have nothing to boast in. No credit that you can take for yourself. Whether you're in this first group wrestling with the doctrine of God's sovereign freedom, whether you're in the second group, you're intellectually convinced, but your affections haven't changed, whether you're in this first, third group, where you're still wrestling with, am I really called? Am I really chosen? What God would say to you, in, no matter where you are, if there's one place you need to go to respond to the truth of my sovereignty and my freedom. And the place you need to go is the place where my sovereign will was expressed in human history. 
And where was God's sovereign will expressed in human history? In other words, God being sovereign and God being free and God being powerful and able to do anything He wills and doing whatever He wills, what did He choose to do in human history? Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then verse 10. A verse I would not dare declare to you unless it was in the Bible. Speaking of God's sovereign pleasure, speaking of God's sovereign will, verse 10 says, And the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. God being unlimited in power, unlimited in freedom, unlimited in sovereignty, unlimited in supremacy, doing whatever He pleases, as He pleases, when He pleases, what did He choose to do in the exercise of His sovereignty? And it was this. He sovereignly sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to become a man. Jesus Christ sovereignly went to the cross. No man took his life from him. He laid it down. God sovereignly was pleased to crush Jesus in our place for our sins, pouring the infinite judgment and wrath that we deserved upon the holy, perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God sovereignly satisfied the wrath of God that we deserved in full so that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then God sovereignly raised Jesus from the dead and God sovereignly came into your life and to my life and said, you are dead, but now you are alive. And the God who sovereignly sent His Son and sovereignly called us to faith in His Son and sovereignly paid for all of our sins is the same God who sovereignly works in our lives today and who will sovereignly take us to glory. For whom He predestined, these He also called. Those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified.
This is why we say, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. And my prayer is that you would say the same as you behold our wondrous God and as you come to Him by faith in His Son. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, you have mercy on whom you have mercy. And you show compassion on whom you show compassion. You do as you please in the heavens and the earth. And the wonder of it all is not that you haven't chosen all. The wonder is that you have chosen some the wonder of it all is that you have chosen us that we may know you that we may be yours forever we stand in awe of your love which is a sovereign love your mercy which is a sovereign mercy your grace which is a sovereign grace and the work of salvation, which is a sovereign work from beginning to end. From the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? Or from Him and through Him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever.